0: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
2: Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find the Bloomberg P&L podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Bloomberg.com. Well, the internet protections that were put in place two years ago are now gone after the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, votes to end net neutrality. Here to help us understand the topic is David Garrity. He's the chief executive of GVA Research. You can follow him on Twitter at GVA Research. Also joining us here in our 1130 studios is June Grosso, our legal expert and co-host of Politics, Policy, P- uh, Politics Power, Policy, and Law and, um, June, maybe just to begin with you, one of the things I learned in researching this topic is that this goes back to 1999 because it has to do with which federal agency, if any, has jurisdiction over what are called broadband providers. And it turned out that the FCC thought they had jurisdiction, but maybe they don't.
3: Well, the Supreme Court has Pretty much taken care of that issue, and so now there is a clear authority that the FT, that the FCC has had the authority that it claims it has. That so that argument has been made, but it's been pretty much taken care of by a Supreme Court case. David,
2: come on in here. We did get this repeal of the net neutrality rules. How will AT&T, Verizon, the other big internet service providers respond to this? Will they immediately start to raise rates for faster internet service?
4: Uh, the providers have essentially indicated that they're voluntarily um, not going to be doing anything but the fact of the matter is is that with the repeal of net neutrality there's been a tremendous transfer of power if you will uh, from the FCC over to the incumbent broadband service providers who control the internet's infrastructure and it really now is uh, volitional voluntary on the part of these providers to decide what type of pricing they're actually going to have so even though the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, has said, look, you know, net neutrality was trying to attack an event that was never going to happen. The fact of the matter is, is that Pai has now opened the door to allow differential pricing. He's now opened the door to essentially let these companies charge what the traffic will bear, not just on the household consumer side, but also on the business side to access, to access something, the internet, which up until now has been viewed as a utility.
1: June, has the uh, FCC's decision also opened the door to lawsuits?
3: It's a question of just how many lawsuits. So already we have the New York AG, Eric Schneiderman, announcing within minutes of the decision that he was going to lead a multi-state lawsuit. Washington AG, Bob Ferguson, various public interest groups, public knowledge, free press. And there are several different ways and claims that they can make due to the way that this was handled.
2: So David, I'm trying to figure out. So they are saying now these big internet service providers, they're not going to raise prices on a voluntary basis. What will be what will it take for them to do so? Number one, number two, who stands to benefit the most and who stands to lose the most?
4: Well, I think first, start with the second question first, which is those who benefit most are those who have and control the infrastructure. You know, they now have the ability to you know change pricing in a, a differential manner. Uh, to charge what the traffic can bear it certainly argues that if you look at it from a return on invested capital basis they have the opportunity now to op- optimize profitability um, in terms of how they 're pricing their service who loses are all the participants whether consumers on the demand side or uh, internet based companies on the supply side in terms of who've been feeding the economy you know up until now we 've seen a gradual process where you know the deployment of the internet has ultimately been deflationary Consumers became far better at discovering prices, and competitors on the margin would come in with more efficient business models and serve to reduce prices to consumers. So net-net, from a broad global economy standpoint, the Internet's deployment has been ultimately disinflationary. And as a result, we've been able to enjoy economic growth with uh, with less inflationary
1: consequences. June, what are the basis for some of the legal challenges that will be made?
3: There are several bases. One of the ones that I think is probably the strongest is that they failed to follow the proper procedural hurdles that they had to go through. And that relates to the millions of public comments. And you heard Eric Schneiderman and others saying that they, after months of investigation, they found that at least two million were fake, using the identities stolen from Americans. And a research study also found that a lot of them were perhaps filed by bots. And what happened is they asked, the 19 state attorney generals asked Ajit Pai to put a hold on the on the vote until they could actually look at these comments, and he refused. So the question is, did he consider those comments as he should have? Did, did the agency consider those comments, or did they fail to follow the Administrative Procedures Act because they didn't? They ignored them? And that's actually a pretty strong argument that they didn't follow their own rules. Another really good one is that the FCC under this uh, blocks the states from making their own net neutrality rules. And so attorneys general can argue that the FCC doesn't have the authority to to prevent state consumer protection laws. And one California state senator has already said he's going to introduce a bill to impose net neutrality rules in that state and so you know the FCC doesn't have unlimited authority to preempt and right. that may be actually the strongest argument
2: well let's talk uh David a little bit about what some of the arguments are for dropping these net neutrality uh, provisions right because some of the internet service providers have argued that they would actually be able to invest more in their infrastructure if they had less government control uh, can you speak to that.
4: Well, I mean, certainly anybody who's getting involved—if you're running a railroad and and you basically have a closed loop—you could argue, yes, if I could earn more money on the traffic I have, I'd be willing to spend more money to upgrade the infrastructure. Uh, You know, this this is in some ways sort of an argument that kind of begs the question. Uh, Everybody's going to come back and say, "Look, if I could optimize for returns, I would throw you know a greater amount of investment at, at an issue." So, you know, in some respect, these are companies that on their own are sufficiently profitable. They aren't regulated to the extent that utilities have been in the past in which their rates of return were capped on the investments that they made. And, you know, maybe they're trying to rely upon people's mindset that this might be something that's the case. But it's not necessarily so in dealing with the FCC or, in specifics, dealing with these companies who obviously are quite well off on their own already to begin with.
2: Well, David, if, if they're not going to raise prices, does this matter?
4: Well, I mean, the issue really boils down to is that, you know, do you really trust the fox to run the henhouse? And so from that standpoint, they may say they're not going to raise prices, but what, in effect, is going to perhaps prevent them from doing so, and doing so in a manner that's less than public? At least the benefit that you get from the standpoint of having a regulatory agency such as the FCC oversee this process and be the one who does have determinative power in this case perhaps leads to a situation where it's more likely that something of a utility nature of these companies would be upheld rather than looking at possibly the dysfunctional outcome of having different... Differential pricing and having the creation of a digital divide that affects not just consumers but also businesses
2: David Garrity CEO of GVA research and of course June Grasso legal expert uh, and Bloomberg radio host uh, here with us as well thank you to both of you uh, very much for breaking this down thank a you. lot of interesting issues and uh, right now we are hoping I suppose, to get some clarity in the near future. Although this is probably going to be dragged on for a while uh, as the attorneys general uh, put this to a legal challenge. And uh, we will cover it here. This has become a dirty thing to produce. This was a line talking about Bitcoin Uh, in an article today on the Bloomberg that digs behind the scenes, uh, behind this unbelievable rally that we have seen in the cryptocurrency this year as to how much energy it's producing and what exactly are the assets that are being used to produce that energy. Here to talk about that is Eddie VanderWalt. He is commodities reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from London. Eddie, let's just start with the energy consumption of Bitcoin mining. There's been a lot of discussion that it is incredibly energy intensive. Can you explain?
5: Right, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, It is. It's it's very energy intensive, Um, and that's that's built into into uh, the DNA of of Bitcoin, really. Um, In order to make the well, in order to make the in in order to make each coin secure, and in order to make it difficult to to limit supply, um, the creator, a person by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto, um, set it up in such a way that you would have to prove that you've done some work in order to. Uh, to get a Bitcoin as a, as a, as a result. Um, he, he modeled it a lot on, on gold mining. So what they use is they use um, big server farms, uh, computers, hundreds or thousands of them in, in a room, this sort of thing that you would see a, a Google or a, or, a, or, a, or a Microsoft data center use. Um, and, and all of these try to solve a math- mathematical problem. But the thing is, they all use electricity uh, and quite a lot of it.
1: All right so if they use quite a lot of electricity and they're in China chances are they're using a lot of coal to generate that electricity is that the basic premise
5: Right right that would be an easy assumption to make and 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 we did when we first looked at this this is this is this was our starting point but of course you could in China they have a lot of hydroelectric uh facilities as well which is very clean very cheap once it's built um and and they could be plugged into these things but when we actually broke down the data and when we looked at where these server farms were located some of them were located around the the hydroelectric facilities but a lot was also and particularly a, a lot of the large ones were way up in the north a long way from these places so all all uh, evidence indicates that they are they, they probably um plugged into coal power plants.
2: So Eddie, uh, yeah, this this is sort of uh, one of the mysteries. A lot of people think of Bitcoin as being a product of Silicon Valley and a sort of hipster mentality, whereas <laughs> the reality of the trading really mostly happens uh, in Asia, particularly in Korea retailers, as well as uh, in China. How much emphasis among the Bitcoin community is there to this uh, high energy consumption aspect of Bitcoin? Or is this something that's just chalked up as sort of a newbie issue? In other words, it will get more efficient over
5: time. I think that's I think I think there's definitely the, the, the community uh, say that it is defensible. They say that it is uh, th- that even even the, the large estimates mean that it is only, they say, something like one point 0.1 percent of Bitcoin. Of, of, Global energy demand, which is still pretty high for a, for, a, for a fairly un, unproven product, but the the community will say that yes, we will become more efficient over time, and we will we will do this uh, in a cheaper way. Um, so I think there's there's definitely, but one thing that we have noticed is that three months ago, because this story didn't we didn't write this overnight, right? This this took this took, it took substantial amount of time to, to do the research, and when we when we started doing the research, the prices were substantially lower um and at that point when we were talking to people they said look we can't mine in europe it is not efficient it's not uh, economical for us to do so it it costs us more in electricity to mine a new bitcoin than we get for selling it now ever since the price has rallied what 2000% in a year uh, the equations changed somewhat uh, and 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 we've got people saying look it's it's uh, efficient everywhere but that certainly wasn't the case when we started, and if prices come down a little bit, it may not be um, may not be economical in Europe again.
1: Well, Eddie, using uh, my Bloomberg here and uh, doing VCCY, uh, it is uh, a mnemonic that I think many people will begin to learn. Uh, tracks the cryptocurrency market, Bitcoin, up uh, about 7% right now, 17650 What about the other cryptocurrencies, uh, such as uh, Ripple or Ethereum or uh, Litecoin? Are they also being mined in the same manner?
5: Right. Uh, I saw a story earlier today uh, saying that Ripple has become the third biggest behind Ethereum and uh, and, and Bitcoin today. Um, It varies. Uh, Certainly, Ethereum is a lot more efficient. Uh, and at, at this stage and the way that is set up early in early in the in the production process or in the coins lifespan, as it were, it, it is it is it's cheaper to mine. Um, that's by design. And, and the and the, the the more established the coin becomes and the more miners who pile in, the more expensive it becomes. So these coins, by definition, are younger. Bitcoin was there first. Um, but also efficiencies have been built into uh, Ethereum and so on. So, yes, I think I think. As we go through the iterations and and um, as the as the industry evolves, I think a lot of these problems will be solved.
2: Eddie, real quick, is it cheaper to use so called dirty energy or coal energy uh, to power uh, some of these crypto mining centers than it is to use renewable
5: energies? It definitely is. It's definitely it's definitely cheaper. Uh, to my, So it's definitely cheaper in places that use dirty electricity because a lot of places that use clean electricity, that, that have an a, a, a energy mix that's uh, more slated towards non-fossil fuel um, types of, of, of electricity, the electricity is actually subsidized. And that means that your energy use is, is heavily taxed. Um, so what makes it expensive in Europe is, is taxes. But also, um, it's just plain and simple coal is cheap
1: thanks very much for joining us eddie vandervault is our commodities reporter for bloomberg joining us from our london studios talking about cryptocurrencies
0: you know it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through
2: The tax plan is moving forward, and President Trump says he's expecting to sign a bill early next week that would be the biggest transformation of U.S. tax policy in decades. Here to discuss it with us is Rick Lazio, senior vice president of Alliant Group, also former U.S. representative from New York, serving in Congress from 1993 to 2001. Congressman Lazio, I'd love to just first start with How do you address criticism that this bill helps companies that don't need help and don't have any incentive to really invest in their infrastructure won't necessarily accelerate the U.S. economy uh, and doesn't give that much of a boost to the middle class? How do you respond to that? Because that is the big uh, core kind of criticism of the whole bill.
6: Right. Well, you know, the trend GDP growth historically post World War II period has been around three percent. We have been around two point two percent since. 2008, since the Great Recession ended, with a le- pickup the last couple of quarters granted in a 3 and 3.3%. So the, the economy is underperforming. The projections, at least from the internal scorekeepers, the Congressional Budget Office in Congress, is for the next 10 years growth at 1.9%. That's an enormous Uh, difference in terms of lost output in economic activity, revenue uh, for individuals and for businesses. And what Congress is trying to do is to close that gap even a little bit would make an enormous difference. The weak parts in most of the of the expansion have centered around business investment with businesses relying more on adding headcount or hiring more people over the last several years than investing in the kind of productivity-enhancing uh, things like new plants or new equipment. That's right. been a soft spot up until the last quarter or two, I'd say. So the focus has been on this. Two-thirds of the tax bill is really focused on trying to stay Stimulate the business community Biz- pass-throughs smaller businesses and larger C Corp uh, well, businesses hold
2: on a second because I'm struggling with this I'm struggling with the 2.3 trillion dollar figure that we see and that's the cash holdings that corporations have uh, that's an estimate uh, it could be bigger and I'm looking at a pretty accommodative credit market people have been able to borrow pretty easily companies especially what what more do they need
6: I think they need visibility. They, they need to need to know they've got some permanence on the tax side, and that they've got more confidence on the regulatory side. And just as importantly, by the way, the demand is growing. So that's on the consumer side, where 70% of the of GDP is. So all that kind of leads to: can we get people to feel more confidence? That's why the Fed is, in part, by the way, so focused on inflation. Janet Yellen and the Fed yesterday saying. The tax bill itself, they're not concerned about it. In fact, it may well add to growth and lower unemployment. Those are are general positives as long as we don't overheat. And right now, to try and get that inflation up a little bit, this this stimulus could be just what the doctor ordered.
1: Uh, Congressman Lazio, do do you believe that the tax overhaul uh, makes it easier or more difficult to fund infrastructure?
6: Um, that, that depends on how the infrastructure is funded and how much they leverage private sector dollars. I think, um, I think infrastructure could be and should be a more bipartisan effort. Uh, I think it will. Yeah. But
1: what about the actual overhaul from what you know about this tax bill? Do you believe that it will make it easier or more difficult, less expensive, more expensive to invest in building bridges, fixing roads, and highways?
6: You know, I, I, I'm i not sure I know the answer to that. I know this, that if this works the way the proponents want it to work, you'll see a growing economy with, with investors on the outside that are looking to place money, including in areas like infrastructure. And what they've been talking about has not been a, a po- totally publicly financed infrastructure initiative, but something that would try and leverage private dollars as well.
1: Who are the, uh, in your estimation, who are the uh, Republicans, that, particularly in the Senate, that may scupper uh, this uh, tax overhaul?
6: Well, you've got two senators, that Senator uh, uh, McCain being one of them, that uh, has, have been struggling with health issues. Senator Corker voted against the package in the Senate, uh, so he's clearly... Uh, A question mark. Uh, Senator Collins from Maine, Senator Rubio from Florida have raised questions, Uh, Senator Lee as well, Uh, Rubio and Lee on the child tax credit uh, issue. So there are a number, every one of these senators understands the incredible leverage that they have with a very tight majority. Uh, And so they are going to raise their issues and squeeze the leadership and the negotiators by, in my experience, by by at least threatening to withhold their vote until they get some movement in their direction. So this is the kind of last-minute horse trading that occurs. But again, the big picture is, can we get more research and development? Can we get higher pro- productivity? Can we get businesses to start to invest in the future? Can we get them th- to, to to be more forward leaning right. than they have been over the last several years?
2: Congressman Lazio, real quick, uh, if you were still in Congress, would you vote for this? I would
6: vote for it, but I would <laughs> would have been. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm a New York taxpayer, so I'm going to be a net loser on this tax bill. Um, There are a lot of people in my position I would have fought quite hard to try and address some of those issues that are important to the coasts. Uh, but I, I understand it. I think overall, if you if you have, if, you, if you're playing to win and you want long-term growth, clearly you've got to address the international corporate tax issues. Almost People on both sides of the aisle agree to that. Clearly you need to do something more on the business side to, to, to build confidence and have some permanency, and clearly you need to do something again uh, to, to incentivize more research, more development, more productivity, enhancing investments for business, and I think this bill will do
1: that. Thank you very much. Former U.S. Congressman Rick Lazio, Senior Vice President at Alliant Group on the tax overhaul plan. Star Wars, The Last Jedi. It is the second highest domestic preview gross of all time, according to the Walt Disney Company. In the film's two-day international release or preview, the cumulative box office gross is over $105 million. So can anything go wrong with the kingdom of Mickey Mouse now being joined by the likes of 21st Century Fox? Here to tell us more is Joe Nocera, columnist for Bloomberg View, and you can follow Joe on Twitter at NoSarahBV. That's for Bloomberg View. Joe, so what do you think about this uh, fifty-two-plus billion-dollar acquisition of these 21st Century Fox assets? I think that the day
7: will come when they look upon the Fox assets the way they're looking at ESPN now. It's uh, it's uh, These are assets that are going to be in decline.
2: Movies that people really like to watch.
7: The movies will do all right. Um, the problem the problem is what Disney is talking about is taking these assets and making them uh, part of a, of a streaming app that will be uh, the Disney version of Netflix uh, uh, and Amazon Prime. Um, and the problem is that they don't, at the same time, they don't want to leave the revenue that they have always gotten and still get to some extent from the legacy media, i.e. the cable bundle. And so they're you know, they doing screwy things like they're saying, well, we know ESP- ESPN's in decline. We know that we need to stream it, but we're not going to put anything on the streaming app that's on television.
2: <laughs> so- well, hold on a second. So, uh, <laughs> so you're saying that they haven't uh, disclosed or, or perhaps even thought out exactly how they are going to uh, how much of their empire they're going to commit to the streaming service. And we're talking about Hulu uh, and, and how much they're going to try to compete with Netflix and Amazon Prime. Right.
7: Well, versus... I don't think I don't think they're going to use Hulu at all uh, in this. I think they're going to have their own streaming app that's going to be Disney movies, Pixar movies, 21st century uh, movies, um, old Fox shows, old FX shows. Um, that That's how I nationally, gra- some things from National Geographic. I mean, I think that could be a pretty powerful streaming app, but the question is, you know, how 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 much money are they going to commit to new content? How much are they just going to think about it as, you know, some place to stuff old content? You know, how much are they going to abandon their need to uh, for revenue from the cable bundle? And and to me, that's the that's the core question. Uh, do you know anybody under 30 uh, who who has a ca- who has a ca- who has who have a cable subscription?
1: There's a an- Eerie silence there. Yes, I, uh, I know. All right, subscri- subscriber subscribers uh, subscriber count for cable uh, television has continued to decline. Right, you've got that. So, what do you believe Disney will have to do in order to access either your mobile phone or your monitor, or your screen at home, in order to make this happen? Because right now, what you have, Amazon, as you have described, with their Fire Stick, you've got uh, Roku, the player. Plus you have, of course, the Apple uh TV and Chromecast. Right. Is now we're gonna get another thing no. we have to get the plug into No our... no no.
7: It'll be an it'll be an app like Netflix or Amazon Prime. I mean, the real question is, will there be enough content on it to attract all those people who are either cutting the cord or never got the cord in the first place? That that's really the question. And I don't think the answer at the moment is yes because I don't think they're all I don't think they're all in. I think they still have one foot in cable and one foot, theoretically, in streaming. Now, the second issue is technology. Netflix, and people don't really think about this, but the Netflix interface is fabulous. And they think about it all the time and they fiddle with it all the time. And there's nothing comparable out there, not even HBO, in terms of suggesting things for you or, or, or uh, you know showing you previews of things. And Disney will have a lot of work to do to catch up with that because that's not their strength. So, yeah.
2: Well, I'm wondering, just talking about Netflix, I know you have written a number of uh, columns about uh, how good Netflix is and how you think that they're going to be very successful in their strategy. I'm wondering how much that's coloring your perception here, that basically Disney has a very high hurdle to cross in being true competition for Netflix. That That's definitely affected my thinking.
7: No, no, no question about it. Um, you know, name one legacy media company, aside from HBO, that has, that has a success, that's truly been successful uh, attracting cord cutters.
2: But if... They hadn't bought these Fox assets. Mm-hmm. Would they be in a better position?
7: No, no, they wouldn't be in a better position. My issue is that as people uh, abandon the cord, Fox shows on television are going to have the same kind of decline as ESPN is having, and it's going to turn out to hurt them in, in an earning sense rather than help them.
3: I see.
2: So in other words, they're looking backwards, and they're saying for us to be successful in the model we've always known, perhaps we'll push it through these online streaming things, uh, but we will look at the content we've had rather than saying, what's the content of the future? How can we create it? How can we then ha- you know, stream it in the best way possible?
1: God, I wish I'd said that in my column. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you wouldn't have the other paragraphs to write. <laughs> um, so has this brought them new competition from the likes of Verizon and AT and T? Verizon wants to acquire Time Warner. AT and T. Sure,
7: I mean AT would def- uh, AT an AT and T Time Warner would would definitely be competition, and I could totally see Time Warner doing the same thing Disney's trying to do: bundle, bundle HBO, Turner, um, Time Warner, you know Warner Brother movies. Um, uh, don't they have some famous cartoons? Yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Come on. You that rabbit, get it. you know. Come on. Oh, my God, that rabbit. Uh, so, so real quick, um, what would you think Disney ought to have done with $52 billion that could have put it at a perhaps better competitive advantage?
7: I think they should have bought Netflix. I think that would have solved two problems. One, the forward-looking problem, the streaming problem. Uh, it would also have solved the Iger secession problem because Reed Hastings is a great CEO.
1: Does this deal put a lot of pressure on Bob Iger? I mean, if this, absolutely, if he, because this is this like a key man issue right now.
7: Well, it definitely puts a lot of pressure on him. Uh, he's done it. He, he's extended his contract to, 20, to 2021 in order to uh, you know, oversee it. Uh, and, and you know, as other people have said, it is legacy defining for him. So he needs this to work.
2: Jono Serra, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we love speaking with you, Jono Serra, columnist for Bloomberg View. Um, I don't really feel too bad for Bob Iger, considering that he got a more than $100 million payout from this deal and he's not doing too badly. <laughs>